It's a nerd's eye view on health from the center and around the globe. Where curiosity serves unity, claiming health is a personal responsibility, and whole health is the only health, mind, body, and spirit. Welcome everyone today, Julie Brown here. I'm very pleased to have with us today, Professor Harold Wallach. He is a researcher at the interface between medicine, psychology and consciousness studies and joins me today from Germany. Dr. Wallach holds a double PhD in clinical psychology and history and theory of science. He has authored more than 170 peer reviewed papers, 14 books and more than 100 book chapters. After a career building a research group in complementary medicine at the University Hospital in Freiburg, Germany, he held a research professorship with the University of Northampton, UK from 2005 to 2009, where he directed the Master of Science program of transpersonal psychology and consciousness studies. From 2010 until 2016, he was a professor with the European University Viadrina in Frankfurt, where he headed a postgraduate master program training doctors in complementary medicine and cultural sciences. He is a free, freelance scientist and writer and the founding director of the Change Health Science Institute in Berlin. Welcome, Dr. Wallach. Hi, Julie Brown. Hello, everybody. <clears throat> I invited Dr. Wallach here today um, to talk about a study that he he wrote and was the primary author on in with a group of other scientists that I first discovered at the end of June. It, it's on the face masking of children and we're going to go through that study in, in quite a lot of detail. I, I went to revisit that study in the fall and discovered it, it had fallen prey to some uh, censorship and other issues and retraction. And I, I think it's really important that we give airwaves right now to sober, intellectually honest conversations so that we can understand how best to support our children because I think we can all agree the kids are not okay. So with that, I'd like to begin with asking Dr. Wallach, what prompted him to do this study and how did he proceed to initiate it? Well, the study was actually prompted by uh, schools and by parents. Uh, parents approached schools and schools talked to parents about what the effects of face masks would be. And so uh, the parents and the schools approached my colleagues asking whether they could organize a study and they said yes, they would. Uh, and that happened two times and the uh, authorities, the school authorities in Germany that are responsible for, for running the schools, they prohibited the studies for, from running in schools. And so what happened next was that parents uh, said, well, let's organize it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then they uh, organized a group of parents and researchers. And one of them finally approached me because uh, we, knew, we knew each other. 
and uh, because they knew that I could uh, help organize a study like that. And then I looked at the team and what they were doing and what they planned to do. And I accepted taking over the coordination of that study, which meant I ran it through the ethics committee. I analyzed the data, I wrote the paper, and I organized the study like randomization and that it was uh, conducted well. And we had a team of one uh, actually oath-bound engineer, measurement engineer. He, he, his, 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 his status is that of an oath-bound ex, oath expert for, for courts and legal procedures in Austria. So he is actually accredited there because he is an expert in measuring uh, gases, carbon dioxide in, in uh, indoor air and that sort of thing. Uh, he was the one who organized the measurement, uh, Triendl, Helmut Triendl was his name. And uh, then we had two doctors who are practicing, practicing, uh, practitioners in medicine that organized it. And then we had an immunologist organizing it and two uh, child therapist expert who offered their, their clinic and their practice so that we could do the measurements. And then we organized it privately and, and did the study there. Excellent. I didn't realize all that backstory. That's I love how organic it unfolded and how and with such rigor scientifically. Um, my question for you is, can we please begin to look at the design of the study, why you chose to measure inhaled CO2 content in the air and then how you achieved that measurement with the children? Yeah. Well, the, the, the idea of the study is actually very simple. We have a lot of knowledge about what carbon dioxide does to the organism, how much is healthy, how much uh, you can stomach without getting headache, that sort of thing. Uh, because when you uh, breathe outside in the air, you have about 400 parts per million or 0.04 volume percent carbon dioxide. When you go inside, you have something between what? 800 to 2000 maximum carbon dioxide. And there is a, a long history of looking at the literature, what is a safe level. And that safe level has been established in Germany by what is called Bundesumweltamt, which is the uh, Office of Envir Environmental Affairs in Germany, an official uh, government institution that 2008 brought out a paper uh, summing up all the evidence and saying 2000 parts per million is uh, the upper limit of safety in indoors air uh, for carbon dioxide. That was our starting point. It is the safety limit for, for, for children and for, uh, and for uh, pregnant women. And it is also the safety limit for work people uh, working with FFP2 masks say in, in an automobile workshop where they use it for preventing um, you know, sprays and stuff coming into the lung. And if they wear it, they can wear it only 90 minutes and they have to make a break and then they, they can do that only four hours. That's the safety limit established in Germany. And we use that as our background because we said, well, these people have done a lot of reading. They have done a lot of uh, evidence summary and we don't have to go beyond that because that is the legal framework. And yeah. our question was, would the air that children inhaled under a face mask uh, violate that safety limit. That's very simple. And in order to do that, we uh, use the measurement apparatus, which has a very uh, wide range of measurements. 
um, of measuring carbon dioxide, it goes actually up to 30,000 parts per million or 24,000. Don't name me on that because I forgot the, the actual number, but it is wide beyond what we measured. So it, the, the range of that measurement device was perfectly okay because some people said it was not, but they, they actually looked at a predecessor uh, instrument that had a smaller range, but the one which we used was perfectly new and it had a very wide range. So the range was enough to see whatever we um, would expect to measure there. And we placed a little hose below the nose and above the upper lip in parallel to one of the nostrils, right? Or in parallel to the mouth so that the air coming into the nose would pass along that hose or that little uh, little measurement piece. And from there, we pumped it into the measurement instrument and collected the air we were interested in, which was mainly and mostly the inhaled air. We also measured both types of air and we also measured exhaled air. But we the principal uh, measurement we were interested in was inhaled air. And in order to achieve that, we had a doctor who observed the child breathing. And whenever the child started breathing in, he activated the pump of the measurement device so that the, the air was sucked into the measurement device. Whenever the, uh, the child stopped breathing in, he stopped the measurement. And that went on for about three minutes so that we collected inhaled air only for three minutes, then we collected both airs. We started actually with, with a mix of inhaled and exhaled air. And in the end, we uh, measured only exhaled air. So we have three types of carbon dioxide measurement, carbon dioxide content in a mixed air, carbon dioxide in inhaled air, and carbon dioxide in exhaled air under two types of masks and with no masks. That right. is the basic design. And the masks we randomized so that one child might have first a normal surgical mask and then an FFP2 mask, and the next one might have the other reversed order, and that was truly randomized, and the randomization was blinded. So for each child, there was an envelope, and the person organizing the study in the, in the clinic opened the envelope and decided on the sequence of the masks. So it was actually a very simple, intra-individually controlled design where we always had a baseline measurement first, three minutes, and then we had mask one, three minutes, mask two, three minutes, and a post baseline measurement as well. And between the mask and between the measurements, we had the appropriate uh, break so that uh, the, the measurements wouldn't be confounded. That's the basic setup of the study. Okay, so I'm just gonna recap that quickly because I think it is exquisitely simple and quite intelligent. So we have an established upper safety limit yeah. of content of CO2 in air that's been established through you know, a rigorous process and it's the German, the German um, government, right? That has established yeah. that as 2000 parts per million in, in air that we would be breathing in. You used a very simple design to test the inhaled CO2 content without a mask under mask condition one, which is a surgical mask, and under mask condition two, which is FFP. Yeah. 
Now, can we just talk about what that is? Because that's not a terminology we use in Canada that I'm aware of. So what is the what is that mask? I think in Canada it would be called NP95 or something like that. In the in the US context, we just call it FFP. This is these are a little bit uh, denser weave. Yeah. more densely weaved and they, they fit very tightly around the nose and they are typically used by uh, say carpenters and people in the automobile industry when they have to spray cars that sort of thing yeah so that's that what we, they are actually designed for we do refer to those here as n95 so that's what i thought yeah, I just exactly to that would be the same thing okay so under the two three conditions before masks surgical mask n95 mask and then a reassessment afterwards Okay, and primarily you were looking at what is the CO2 content of the inhaled hair because that is the safety measure we have of 2000. Exactly. Okay, mm -hmm. so this is very clear. So now we move into the study where you actually conducted with with the children. Yeah. And I mean, the the measurements are quite are quite compelling. Um, you know, 13,000 parts per million or 13%, right? Mm -hmm. 1.3%, 13,000 13, or 1.3%. Right, 1.3% mm -hmm. equals 13,000 parts per million. So under yeah. mass condition one, you found 1.3% or 13,000 parts yeah. per million, yeah. which is far above the safety limit. It's a factor six times higher than what is uh, the established safety limit. And under, surprisingly to me actually, because I, I actually worked in hospitals during the SARS um, epidemic of 2003 in Toronto. And mm -hmm. so I lived in an N95 mask all day as a health professional. And I'll tell you what, by the end of the day, I couldn't remember my own phone number. I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm quite surprised to see that the under mask condition two of the N95, it actually isn't that much different in terms it's, of the, it's slightly in, different but not much not but much that's probably hmm? yeah that has probably to do with the fact that for children they don't fit as tightly as for adults right because yeah. there are no children and 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 95 masks they are all generic and i think that's probably because we you you have always some air coming in from the side so there is not much different there is a small difference but it's not significant i think mm -hmm. if we if we had been interested in uh, proving that small difference significant, we probably would have had to measure 90 children or something like that. Then we would have seen a difference, also statistically significant difference. But uh, with the 45 children we measured, that that uh, that difference between FFP2 or N95 and surgical mask was small, right. comparatively small. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, they weren't fit tested. They weren't they weren't sized appropriately. Right. That makes sense to me. OK, so. When we when we start to begin to look at the conclusions, I think that if if you, I mean, you you're welcome to elaborate on the results, but I feel like they're really clear. Um, yeah. And and when we get into sort of what does this mean for children, particularly healthy children that are not actively infected, they're not sick, you know, we know that the literature, and I'm going to actually do a follow-up episode on specifically the broader literature available on efficacy of masks for viral transmission, which, mm -hmm. which we can generally say we know in healthy people is insignificant and, and really negligible. 
Oxford Zero. Yeah, I mean, Jefferson and his group from Oxford, they did very good uh, systematic reviews, which have just been published in the Cochrane collaboration. They worked on uh, randomized controlled studies with influenza, because that is a very similar virus in terms of size and transmissibility. And they did not find any effect even in a clinical context in hospitals. So there is no good argument really why healthy people in the community outside of any risk uh, environment should be wearing those. Right. So we have no evidence of efficacy. Not really, no. I mean, there is one study from, from Denmark which used uh, the recommendation of wearing masks versus no recommendation and they looked at the effects and the effects are negligible. Mm -hmm. That was a huge study. There's a very, very small effect and it's, it's really so small that you, that you cannot even talk about that. And when it comes to uh, actually infection, the people from the mask group had in fact, they, they had less infections, but they had uh, one case more of serious disease than the people who were not recommended to wear a mask. So there is really no real evidence. And the evidence that is cited comes mostly from modeling studies, hmm. studies that model something. I've looked at two, at two of them more carefully. One of them is a Japanese study. And what they did is they built a little box. And when I say little, it means 120 centimeters by 50 by 50. Mm -hmm. If you calculate the volume, it's about 240 liters of air in there. And then they put uh, viral loads in there that are equivalent to the, to the exhalation of someone who is really seriously sick and short of dying. 10 to the power of seven, I think it was. Okay, viral load. And they circulate that for 15 minutes in there. So you have 15 minutes, <laughs> highly viral lo virally loaded air. And then there is, there is two heads, um, plastic heads with masks, and then they can show an effect of masks. But I mean, this is such an incredibly silly thing. You never have any, anyone sitting in a 240 liter uh, piece of air because they would drop dead before they had even a chance to inhale any, any virus. So that's the type of study that is being used as argument that uh, masks help. They do, if you are, if you are silly enough to, to look at a study like that. And it's actually not easy to find the details of that study. You have to go into the supplementary material. You have to think a little bit. You have to calculate the volume. You have to, you know, and, and that, is, that is a kind of pseudoscience, I think, which, which is not even worth the, 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 the noun science. And that is the type of material that is being presented. I've seen that in a court case being presented, right? And another study, was conducted by the German Max Planck Institute, which was also a modeling study. That's a typical example also. They used 10 to the power of 7.5, whatever that means, but that's in the publication. And that is exactly the, that, that uh, viral load comes from two studies at the beginning of the pandemic, one from China, one from, from France. And the highest values there were 10 to the, power, to the 11th power and, and 10 to the 8th power. And the median was 10 to the 4th power. And these were all people who were deadly sick. They either died or were in, in intensive care. 
that is not a realistic scenario for wearing masks in universities. And that is what it is being used for, you know, mm -hmm. as an argument that people in a university should wear FFP2 masks in Germany. It's so incredibly silly. I don't understand how one can even contemplate that. Yeah, and I mean, it's not even, it doesn't even relate to what a health professional's experience would be in an ICU because of the air volume difference. And, and at least in, in, that, in that context, we're talking about sick people with, 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 with high viral load, but then we have air filtration systems on top of that. So it's not relevant really at all to reality. But, exactly. but I would say that, that a, lot of, a lot of what's taken us down very nonsensical paths over the last two years yeah. We, we, we can we can credit to models like er errors in modeling as opposed that is, to using that, that is very true mm -hmm. but that's why we did the study because we wanted to see what is actually happening and the interesting thing is nobody wants to know because no. uh, when it was published it was attacked on very nonsensical grounds and it was retracted after a week on even more nonsensical grounds because i answered all the questions that were posed to me and then the journal office said uh, the answer was not sufficient and they had commissioned an additional scientific review, which was never sent to me. And on those grounds, it was retracted. I think this is actually violating publication ethics because there are exactly three, three reasons for retracting something. One is fabricated data fabricated or wrong data. That is not the case. We did uh, true measurements and we can make it plausible that they are true. The second is wrong analysis. That is not the case. And the third is plagiarism. And that's not a plagiarized item. So there is no reason to retract it. One could publish all the letters and together with my rebuttal, and that would have been it, you know. But retracting a piece of research for those reasons is against publication ethics. Now, we, we submitted it to another journal, and the other journal had two very good reviews uh, coming back, one saying they don't even understand why it was retracted and why the other reviewer was uh, saying what he or she was saying. And the third review was damning. And so it was not uh, accepted for publication. And the same happened the second time. And now it's with a third journal or with a, uh, with a, yeah, with a third journal. And let's see what happens. Wow, what a process. And yeah. the, the, the editor of the Journal of American uh, Medical Association, which which published it the first time before it got retracted, it was the same editor that that advanced the publication that then also retracted it. No, I don't think that's true. Okay. Editor who accepted the paper <clears throat> was not the one who who communicated with me about the retraction. Okay. My guess is, but that is only an educated guess. My guess is that someone else stepped in from the American Medical Association or from the from the journal organization uh, and took the whole thing over and out of his hands because I never heard of him again after that. Right. And that was somebody completely different who handled the retraction process. And it obviously went through peer review before it was published. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it had three three uh, peer reviews plus the editorial review. So there were actually four reviews because one review was by the editor. Then there were three uh, separate peer review uh, peer reviewers who, who commented on the paper, made suggestions of improvement, which we all uh, fulfilled. And that went through, I think, two or three cycles of reviews, two uh, external reviews with reviewers and one additional one with the editor. And then it was published or accepted. Mm -hmm. You know, 
there's a lot of things that have probably been keeping a lot of us awake over the last couple of years at night. But for me, my entire, my entire adult life has been, you know, serving science and health in people. And so the thing that's been keeping me awake a lot at night is where do we go when science is hijacked and we no longer respect that there is a process and a methodology? It's not an entity. It's not a science is not an entity. It's a method. And when we disrespect its method and we hijack and we basically select for outcomes that are desirable to support some kind of political end, we lose science as a method entirely. Yeah, that's a very true observation. I would I would a little bit disagree with you about what science is because I think I being being in that field of science studies also, I have come to see science more as a social product or a social process where mm -hmm. science and its method is just one item in a network of other uh, actors. So Bruno Latour, the, the French uh, sociologist of science, he calls it the actor network or actor network theory. In my talk to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance on Wednesday, I, I elaborate on that a little bit because there is also uh, the public, there is also sponsors, there is also nature we are dealing with and the methods we are using and all that together creates the scientific fact. So what is happening is that other entities that are very strongly involved, such as sponsors, such as um, uh, media, communication people, they enter the field at the same time with a lot of um, momentum. And that changes the outcome of that process. That's what I'm observing. I mean, there is, there is not, it's not that there is no science, but there is, there is science that is biased towards a certain end. And that is what worries me, that the end is driving what is publishable and what is not publishable. Or what is publishable in first tier and prime journals and what is only publishable in second or third tier journals or only much later. For instance, we have, when I say we, it's a, it's a consortium of two, two more colleagues. We have shown, convincingly shown, that the study that was used to model uh, positive effects of the lockdown in Germany, which was published in Science, premier tier journal, uh, actually used wrong data, right? Mm -hmm. The data were wrong. We, we wrote to those authors very early on, and they actually agreed. They said, you're right, the data are wrong. And they actually published that. But they published that on a blog roll of science that is not referenced, that nobody can find, and that is not uh, indexed in any database, but they did not retract their publication. We submitted that paper to another journal, took a couple of months for review, and it was rejected. We submitted it to a second uh, journal, took a couple of weeks, and it got rejected. And then we were invited to publish it in, a, in another journal where it went through a couple of rounds of review, and it was published now, about four weeks ago, two years after the fiasco. And that's what I mean. It's not that you cannot publish the stuff, but it is it is it's very complicated because there is a preconception about what should be the outcome of the studies and the preconception is politically fixed in advance. Because there is some sort of preconception about politically correct results. 
and that is what hijacks science. I would I would agree with you there, and that is very worrying. It is very worrying. I appreciate your nuance. You kind of have positioned, you know, the method of it within the social construct that actually drives this endpoint. I I actually I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to draw us back to the conclusions of the of the study, which were pretty clear. There's no yep. efficacy. There is we've you've demonstrated very clearly that the inhaled air parts per million or percent content of CO2 exceeds the safety limit sixfold. And so there's no justification after three minutes. After three after minutes. Three minutes after three minutes and you know i don't know what's happening in your country but you know in mine children are now wearing it during phys ed yeah i see that all the time i saw a family today father mother uh, maybe 16 year old son and maybe 12 year old son nobody was wearing a mask but the 12 year old was in the open air outside outside mm -hmm. yeah there are sports organizations here where they have people masked outside at cross-country ski races <laughs> until the child is racing and then they can take off their mask and race. I mean, it's it's this nonsensical. It's nonsensical. This is, this is crazy. And in my, my view, it's a crime because uh, children are being, are being conditioned into nonsensical behavior. Mm -hmm. They are being rewarded by social recognition, by uh, being being lauded and commended into a completely nonsensical behavior. And that is reinforced all the time by their peers, by what is demanded from them by the system. And I think that is is not only bad for their health, it's also bad for their for their uh, you know for the mental condition. What can I who can I believe? Mm -hmm. uh, is is what these people say to me true can i believe other things they say to me yes and that is that is what worries me i think the erosion of trust across all dimensions yeah. of society right now is being underestimated mm -hmm. as to the implications going forward and you know the other thing i'm concerned about with the children is we're not even teaching them how to trust their own deductive logic because many of them can see that it's nonsensical but we're overlaying that with with such strong messaging that we're actually we're destroying their own instinct to question and and yeah. deduce. Um, and and that that is that is what what is really bad. I mean, the masks are bad in themselves, but uh, reinforcing nonsensical behavior with essentially lies, mm -hmm. wrong information, is probably the worst you can do to a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's highly unethical, that's for sure. And I would agree with you. It's reached the point of criminality because we're long past the scramble from the beginning when we didn't know. It's two years we know, right? Uh -huh. There's two things I want to wrap with here for the listeners. One is what's next for you guys? I mean, you've submitted again. Actually, three. What what can people do that are listening to this? to encourage more rational approach to decision-making and basically to liberate our children from what is total nonsense and harmful and not helping in any way. Uh -huh. and, and what is it that you want people that don't understand, you know, how science goes through a process and has been hijacked? Is there a takeaway you want them to understand from this discussion? Because I think people are, 
remarkably confused. Mm -hmm. Well, what is next for us currently? It's sitting with another journal, and we are waiting for the for the feedback. And I would hope to at one point get a really fair hearing so that we can get the study published so that people can use it. For instance, when they go to their school authorities saying we are against those mask mandates, that would be for me the next step. Uh, it is currently difficult to do that because the school authorities, they come back with all sorts of arguments that are not fact based, but uh, are still being made and there is very little um, there is very little counter argument you can raise because there are not so many data around, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, there is another study which we quote in our manuscript. The manuscript is available on archive.org as a preprint. And there we quote another study which was in adults and they found nearly the same uh, results with face masks in adults, 12,000 parts per million carbon dioxide under, under normal face masks. That can be used as well. And I think what can listeners take away? Get active. Don't let it happen. Talk to people, talk to, uh, to directors of schools, to, to um, school authorities, to teachers, um, talk to the children and uh, let it not just happen as it is happening. That would be, I think, an important question. And then about science, well, I know many scientists who, who are uh, discomforted and there is a, a growing number uh, doing studies on, on important questions, publishing those. I think one has to understand science is an extremely slow process. You know, it's not possible to, to get clear data from, from science within a short amount of time. You can get some data, but not clear data, because there will always be uh, a counter-argument and there will always be somebody else who has other results and so forth. But in fact, you know, if you look at the data, they have been around early on. The problem is not that we didn't have the data. For instance, uh, John Ioannidis uh, published uh, infection fatality rates across the world, which are similar to influenza, about three quarters of, of uh, into, into the pandemic. That, that was known. The problem is that uh, the media didn't cover the data fairly. And so uh, I think one important lesson to be learned is that mainstream media are very easily captivated and captured or even hijacked, I don't know, by, uh, by majority interests, be that industry, be that political interests, be that stakeholders in, I don't know, the vaccine business, whatever it is, it could be anything. But it is very naive to trust the mainstream media. So my, my appeal would be uh, to broaden the view. There are many uh, alternative media in the internet. One does not always know whether they are correct, but they cover, they cover uh, a broader spectrum. So if someone who is not within science and cannot read prime, uh, um, scientific information, then it's important to not have only one media outlet as a source of information. That would be my message. And in fact, it would be best if people became literate and read 
the scientific uh, information themselves. It's very easily available nowadays. There are preprint servers that offer scientific manuscripts be before they are published in scientific journals. You have to know something and you have to have some, some background, of course. And if someone doesn't have that, it's difficult to read that type of information. But if someone cannot read this type of information, it's important to broaden out the spectrum of information sources. That is my message. Because if you are, are reading different types of internet uh, magazines and journals, uh, then you get a good picture. Because there you get everything covered that is not covered in the mainstream media. And if you see that as a pattern for a while, then you know there is a political agenda. Yeah, I think that's I think that's super clear. And I mean, certainly in Canada, we've seen some really great examples of late with with the convoy, the coverage that that's been happening, that has been direct from the source, people sharing their experience on the road and how many people are there is in direct contrast with with what got showed, you know, on the, the national broadcasters and mainstream media. And I think when people can see that distinction, they can begin to sort of go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. exactly. And that that becomes the beginning of seeking more. Um, mm -hmm. Now, there's one last thing, actually, Dr. Wallach, you know, anybody that's speaking out right now and, and offering scientific data and analysis and perspectives that are is not um, in the uh, majority view mm -hmm. is is receiving a lot of criticism. And and in fact, what's happening that I'm observing is the criticism is not one that is a, is approaching the data set or, yeah. or the idea or the concept or the theory. It's actually mm -hmm. directly an assault on character. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm 20 plus years into my career and I've never seen this inside the science world to this degree ever. And I don't know if I'm agree. naive. You agree. Okay. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Character assassination is probably the, the right word for what is happening. For instance, uh, one of the, of the uh, arguments that was raised against our mask study was that it was funded by a group of anti-vaxxers. <laughs> that was the argument. This is actually, it, it's completely wrong. It was funded by a, by a, uh, by a charitable uh, group, which is critical of the mainstream corona narrative. That is true, but it has nothing to do with being anti-vax. A lot of doctors uh, vaccinate all the time, but they are not, they are not uh, supporting that vaccination program. So this is a character assassination which has, which has nothing to do with, with data, and I see that all the time. And that also drives a lot of scientists away because they are afraid. Yeah. They're simply afraid of their reputation being ruined by getting enmeshed in that whole uh, corona thing. So they say, oh, I don't want to touch that. That's too dangerous. That's too hot. I don't want to get uh, involved in that type of thing. Yeah. And that is, of course, also the tactic of those who want to uh, pin a certain narrative to the, to the society at mm -hmm. large. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty evident these days. And you know, if you can't question it, it's not it's not science anymore that, you know, the inquiry and the dissent is is critical to the process. So um, I really appreciate you sharing with us today the work that you guys have done. And I certainly hope 
that it sees the proper light in in the publication. Okay. <laughs> so do I. Um, Thank you very much I, for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I look forward to your talk with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. They yeah, okay. are doing some great work here in Canada. And for anyone listening, their website is full of great resources, including a video looking at the data that Pfizer's own data and, mm -hmm. and showing. showing yeah, so I've seen that. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. It's excellent, isn't it? Yeah. So there, there are sources out there for people that have questions and are confused. It's there, and um, may may the dust settle and the clouds clear. Okay, good. Thank you very much for the opportunity to present our point and for the time you gave me. And goodbye to all the listeners. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. Stay curious. Together, we can light the way to better health. Join us at growyourhealth.ca to learn more about how to add your light to the movement.